So we just prayed, but I'm going to pray again because I know I need it, and I'm sure there's someone else that needs prayer too. Um, God, I, I am humbled uh, to be here tonight. God, I thank you for your beautiful creation. Thank you for um, answering at least my prayers that it would be good weather tonight. God, I, I just thank you for how good of a God you are, how beautiful and amazing and, and wonderful God you are. God, I pray you will help me right now. Give me the words that you want me to speak. I want this to be your message, your word going out. Give me, give me the, the boldness and the confidence I need. And God, I ask that you will work in each person's heart tonight. Even if they're just driving by or walking by, I pray that you will encourage, challenge, convict, meet people where they're at, and just use your word to draw them close to you. Use your word to cause them just to worship you in a more deeper and an intimate way. God, again, I just praise you and I thank you. In your name, amen. So Larry Norman, a pioneer of Christian rock, wrote these lyrics for the song Reader's Digest. So this was a song written in the 70s, kind of in like a Bob Dylan um, type way. But the lyric says this, What a mess the world is in. I wonder who began it. Don't ask me. I'm only visiting the planet. So ever since the fall, sin has been destroying this world, whether it be earthquakes, hurricanes, sickness, corruption, abuse, starvation, death, you name it, this world is fallen. And it's in a spiral downwards until the end, until Jesus comes back. And amongst all of this, Larry Norman's response, I'm only visiting this planet, should somewhat be the Christian's response. Yes, all this sin is here, all this sorrow is here, but I'm just visiting this planet. And the worst thing that you could do is get cozy and call this home. And Paul talks about having this eternal perspective in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But before we go there, I just want to give a, a foundation on why we're supposed to have an eternal perspective. And the first foundation is what God wants us to do. So Jesus, in his time here on earth, consistently warned his followers that following him would be no easy thing. You can read that all throughout the Gospels. In Luke 15, Jesus said that his followers would need to love him more than any other family member. He said his followers would have to be willing to die if they actually wanted to follow after him. And he used the, the, the words, you know, bear or carry this, this cross. And sometimes in Christian culture, we can kind of sissify that. Like, yeah, I'm not feeling too good today, but it's my cross to bear. Or, yeah, there's this relationship difficulty, but it's my, it's my cross to bear. But what Jesus here is saying is, is very serious, that if you want to follow after me, you need to be willing to take up your cross, be willing to die in obedience to me. What he said was, was very, very serious. Following after him could mean that they, that you lose everything, including your life. And he told the followers and he tells us that we need to count the cost before we follow after him. Because following after Jesus can mean we lose everything. 
And, and why would following Jesus possibly be so dangerous? What, what are we doing that that would be dangerous? And before Jesus left, he gave this great commission in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end. So before Jesus went up into heaven after his death and resurrection, he gave this command to all believers to make disciples until the end of the age. And that's, this is not the end of the age right here. We are all commanded to make disciples because Jesus has not come back yet or we haven't been called to be with him in heaven. So we are commanded by Jesus to make God's name known by making disciples and obeying him. We're supposed to share the gospel and walk alongside believers, growing them, helping them grow closer to God. That's our mission. And because sin is present in this world, the gospel, God, he is hated. And in this process of making God's name known, some people might be killed or hurt doing it. And you can look. I mean, you guys, I believe, just finished the book of Acts uh, here. And all throughout that book, you can see how they were persecuted, how they were beaten, how they were thrown in prison. And we don't exactly know where all of the disciples ended up and how, how they died. But according to myths and, and traditions, they died horrible, horrible deaths. I mean, they were all in, willing to die. They realized that this is not their home. And we have a mission to go and make Jesus' name known to all people. And that means sacrificing things here on earth so that others can have a part in God's family. Whether that be time, money, our lives, whatever it may be. So that's the first foundation, what God wants us to do. The second foundation is, well, why would anyone follow this Jesus guy if we might die doing it? I, I like being comfortable. I, why on earth would I do that? It's a fair question. I would offer up many passages, but to keep this short, we'll do Colossians 1, 21 to 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So why would we follow this, this Jesus guy? Why would we be willing to obey him to the point of death? And it's because you and I, because of our sin, deserve to be separated from God forever in hell. And in eternity, separated from God. That alone means that, man, we should be willing to do anything to obey him, anything to praise and worship him, but that's not all, because we are reconciled. We become a part of God's forever family, and once you believe in Jesus, no one can take that away from you, and God, he, he moves in you, and he changes you. He makes you be more like him, and then we get to be with, with this beautiful Savior, our wonderful Father, one day when he calls us home. 
And I could give example after example of why else we would be willing to sacrifice everything for God. But just in, in these few verses, I mean, that's why. Because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done for us. So the first foundation is what God wants us to do. The second foundation is who Jesus is and what he commands us. And then there's this third foundation. It's what's the time limit on this? Revelation 22, 20 says, he who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. And in Revelation 22, three times in this passage, it says, I am coming quickly. Now that was written over a thousand years ago, but in the grand scheme of things, Jesus is coming quickly. God's being patient with us, which I'm very thankful for. His desire is for all to be saved. But if you look around, you'll see it's probably not too far away until Jesus comes back. And when he comes back to believers, man, we get to spend eternity with him. And what that means is this isn't really our home. We're called to a far greater, far more beautiful place. This here is is just a mission. It's kind of an assignment. There's something far greater for us. In light of eternity, no matter where you're going, this is all over in the blink of an eye. James 4.14 says, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. But Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of this, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it's just a snap. It's a blink of an eye. It's, it's, a, it's a vapor. But man, for the believer, our, our true home is heaven. And if Jesus is coming back soon, that means us believers don't have too much time to waste here on earth. And if we have a mission to make God's name known, we can't waste our time here. If there are millions of people who don't know Jesus and you're given a command to live your life in the pursuit of following Jesus, we can't live like this is all there is. We can't live like this is home. But there's this tension Right? And I feel this tension of, man, I, in my sinful state, I really like to be comfortable. I don't like to feel awkward. I don't like to get out of my comfort zone. I don't like to be uncomfortable. And then there's this other side of realizing this isn't my home. Jesus is coming back soon. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses this tension of what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven, but still be here for the time being. Now, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth. And it's believed that 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter to this church. And the first never making its way to us. The, the city of Corinth was just sinful, rampant idolatry and sin everywhere. The church was doing on things unbiblically. They, they had questions for Paul and Paul addressed those things. And Paul wanted that church to get back to their original first foundation, Jesus we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7, 29 to 31. So if you're not there already, you can kind of just turn there real quickly. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of jump into chapter 7 so we can get some context. 
So in this church of Corinth, there were a lot of wrong ideas going around about marriage and relationships. So in verse 1 through 7, Paul kind of addresses that there's nothing wrong with marriage. It can help with temptation. A lot of good can come from being married. In verses 8 to 9, Paul addresses that being single is a gift too, and there's more on this later. In verses 10 to 16, Paul addresses the married people in this church and the different situations they faced when one spouse believed but the other didn't. And Paul told them to remain as they are. Marriage is a picture of God's relationship with us, and divorce is not something to be taken lightly. The marriage could stay intact, that's preferable. You never know that the unbelieving spouse could come to know God. However, if the unbeliever spouse leaves because this this believing spouse knew Jesus, that, that believing spouse didn't do anything wrong. In verses 17 to 24, Paul says, you need to be where God's put you. You need to remain as you are. Paul here continues with the remain as you are idea from the past few verses. He's saying that God can use you where he's put you. Paul gives two examples of how what matters is serving Jesus and obeying him wherever he's called you. In verses 25 to 28, Paul here again says that it's okay to remain as as they are in this church. They don't need to be anxious if they're married. They don't need to be anxious if they're single. And there was some kind of distress going on at this time with this church. Uh, It could have been a famine. It could have been a persecution. So in that case, it certainly would have been helpful to be single without having a family to worry about. But again, it's not a sin to be married, neither a sin to be single. It's just that married people have a lot of distractions vying for their devotion and attention. I've been married for like five months, and I can attest to this. Some good distractions, some not great distractions. And then in in verse 29, Paul starts this verse out by calling back to the point he was just making. So verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. So let's stop there. Paul doesn't want the married people to have worldly troubles because, like we've been talking about, time is limited. Believers don't have time to be distracted by needless arguments or distraction. Whenever I look up a Greek word, I like practice the pronunciation like 60 times and then I stand up in front of people and I forget it. So let's try this. Don't judge me too hard. So the Greek word for time used here is kairos, something like that which typically refers to a crucial time or essential point in history. So why is time running out? Well, in the New Testament, this Greek word is often used to reference Jesus coming back. So time is running out because Jesus is coming. And the idea here and in the following verse is that the believer should be living life here with their full focus on God and what he wants them to do. Believers are supposed to live life here with an eternal perspective, realizing that this is all going to pass away or fade away. And the believers are, are on a mission, and, and you can't get tangled up in, in all the distractions. So then Paul continues in, in 29, From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. It's a worrisome verse at first. So, 
how do you kind of reconcile living as though you aren't married, but at the same time following Ephesians 5 of loving your wife like Christ and, and the wife submitting to, to the, the husband representing Christ in the church? How, how are you supposed to reconcile these things? It seems really impossible. So what is Paul saying here? Are we supposed to kind of neglect our spouse? Kind of just leave him there, go off to the mission field and and do something else? Forget him. That's not what he's saying. But God warns believers throughout his word to not worship anything but him. Exodus 23 says, You shall have no other God before me. And you tell me, how easy is it to make your spouse or family an idol? Again, been married for five months. I struggle with this already. It's hard. But in the end, marriage isn't really about us. It's about glorifying God. That's what everything is for. And Paul is telling these believers that if they're married, they need to live with Jesus as their priority. Don't you dare neglect your wife or family. You are called to love them like Jesus loves. But at the same time, you can't put them above Jesus. Because again, we're on a mission. We're on an assignment. And I don't, I, I'm still trying to figure out what this looks like. What does it look like to love, in, in my case, my, my wife like Christ, but at the same time, make Jesus a priority? I, I struggle with, with what this looks like practically. But I mean, if you're married, if you have that family, Start with making praying and studying the word a priority. Each day, asking God to help you love him more. And there'll be more on this later, but get involved in ministry together. Take risks for Jesus. In verses 30 to 31, it says this. Those who mourn, actually, I'll pick up in 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. We'll stop there. What do these verses mean? Does it mean that we can't cry, we can't be joyful, we can't buy things, we can't deal with the world? I mean, is this saying that we need to kind of run away, live like monks in in a hut, scared of everyone and everything? Is is that what this is saying? Because, I mean, first glance, it it kind of almost seems like that. Let's let's take it point by point. So in regards to the the mourning, this this is not saying we can't mourn. I mean, Jesus, he, he cried. We see plenty of godly people in the Bible who mourn. And that, that's not an issue. Sin's effect on mankind, it has a devastating effect on us. As, as human beings, we need to mourn, we need to cry, but as believers, we don't need to. We shouldn't mourn forever because we have a hope that no one else has, that we are going to be in heaven one day. Believers shouldn't be so focused on their problems that they ignore the fact that time is running out and people need Jesus. And I mean, I I can't imagine some of of the trauma some of you guys have gone through. I understand that that trauma, depression, and sorrow, they follow people. But the great thing is the believer doesn't have to let this mourning and sorrow permanently overpower them or stop them from making disciples. Through God's strength, you can rejoice and you don't have to 
stop making disciples because of all, all that happens here. The next one is rejoicing. And this verse obviously isn't saying we can't rejoice because that's crazy. We're commanded to always rejoice in the Lord. But what we have to do is realize that none of this here on earth can completely satisfy our souls. Nothing here. When we are with Jesus someday, we will be satisfied in a way that we've never experienced. So don't get so caught up with all the good things here that you aren't focused on eternity and reaching people for Jesus. So enjoy the things that God has given us. These things that God has given us, they could be used to glorify and make much of him, but don't let them captivate you so much that you forget why you're here. Don't get so captivated by all this here that you forget how much more satisfying heaven is than all of this. In regards to buying, this isn't saying you can't buy things because that would be crazy. Some people might be able to do like the garden and kind of live off hunting and gardens. I would die in a day. I need a bag of Cheetos. I need a Dr. Pepper. I need a McDonald's burger at least once a week. So I, I would die. That's, that's not saying that we, we can't buy things, but believers buy realizing that everything we get is going to pass, fade, or rust away. Believers shouldn't be caught up in material possessions. Believers should hold their possessions loosely, realizing there are far greater rewards in heaven. John Piper wrote this. Picture 269 people entering eternity in a plane crash. Before the crash, there is a noted politician, a millionaire corporate executive, and a missionary kid on the way back from visiting grandparents. Then after the crash, they all stand before God, utterly stripped of every MasterCard, checkbook, credit line, clothes, success, books, and Hilton reservations. The politician, the executive, and the missionary kid on level ground with nothing, absolutely nothing in their hands, but only what they brought in their heart. Oh, how absurd and tragic the lover of money will seem on that day, like a man who spends his whole life collecting train tickets, and in the end is so weighed down by the collection, he misses the last train. Don't try to get rich, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of the world. So the believer, yes, yes, you buy, you can enjoy things, but don't get too caught up with all the stuff here. Don't forget where all this stuff will end up someday. Don't forget that we are called to a mission. We can use the resources God has given us to draw people to himself. And then there's this dealing with the world. In your interactions with the world, remember and live it out that this is not your home. And that can be really hard to do. It gets sometimes really scary here. Or sometimes it can be really good and we forget that this isn't our home. So don't run away and become a, a hermit somewhere so you don't have to interact with anyone or deal with the world. You need to be present so you can be a witness. But don't get so caught up in all that goes on, whether you're dealing with work, uh, politics and elections, friendships, or anything else in the world. Deal with it realizing that this isn't the end. There are better, more satisfying things in heaven. So deal with the world here with a light touch, realizing again that this, this isn't all there is. And Paul, what he does is he ends with a similar statement from the beginning of the passage. So he says, for the present form of this world is passing away. And all of this one day will be gone. All the things that you work for really won't matter anymore. 
So you need to be careful with where your heart and devotion is. It's not wrong to retire. It's not wrong to have vacations. It's not wrong to have nice cars or or big TVs. But where is your heart and devotion? Francis Chan wrote this. Picture a nice house with a white picket fence and your happy family lounging inside. Now imagine a full-scale war unfolding just a few blocks away. Your friends and neighbors are fighting for their lives while you are remodeling your kitchen and hanging your new big screen TV. You have contractors installing better windows so you can tune out all the noise. It's so easy here to become numb to the hurting and the broken, all the noise, all the stuff that we have going on. Don't become numb. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're supposed to feel a tension that we don't really belong here. We shouldn't be fitting in with the rest of the world. We shouldn't be living like we belong here. And man, I don't know where you are in life or in your relationship with Jesus, but this is a passage that applies to everyone no matter where you are. If you haven't believed in Jesus, you too need to realize that time is running out. Jesus will come back one day. Eternity is real. And one day, you'll be standing before God and you realize that you wasted your life. That all that time working to gain things and get more, all that will be foolish when you stare in the eyes of Jesus. So if you don't know Jesus, I'm going to read Colossians 1, 21 to 23 again. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." So if you don't know Jesus, you are alienated from him. You are spiritually dead, in danger of being separated from God forever. And that is a terrifying thought to me. And if you don't know Jesus and you're here, that Jesus, he died for you so you could be reconciled to his perfect forever family. And when you believe in Jesus, he changes you. He makes you like him. There's nothing that can take that away from you. Trust in who Christ is and what he did for you on the cross. And if you have any questions about what that means, come talk to one of the pastors or one of the elders or myself. We, we, we would love to talk to you about that. But if, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you need to have your devotion completely on God, which is what Paul says in verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul's goal for the Corinthian church was to have this undivided devotion to God, and and that's what our goal should be for our life. Undivided devotion to making God's name known. And that's a hard thing to do. What does that look like? Before we end, I just want to read... Philippians. Love the book. Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 says this. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 3 verse 8 says this. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So if you believed in Jesus, do you count everything that you own as rubbish, as trash compared to knowing and following Jesus? Like if you lost everything for following Jesus, what would your response be? And I'll be honest, I don't count everything that I own as rubbish and trash. But man, what would the church be like if we saw our stuff as rubbish compared to Jesus? What would the church, the universal church be if they held their possessions in their own lives lightly? What if the church lived like seeing Jesus is gain, but living here is about serving Christ and making his name known? What if the universal church around the world woke up and saw this and lived this out? Imagine what would happen. So here's my challenge to you and to me. Start by praying and asking God to show what you are making a priority above him. Confess that. Ask him to help you to hold it lightly or maybe you need to get rid of it completely. Ask God to give you this intimate love for him. Dive into his word. Discover who he really is. And one of the biggest things you can do is get out of your comfort zone and start reaching out to the lost, to the broken, to the poor. Because when you do that, it's impossible to become numb to the needy around you. You can't drone all of that out when you are face-to-face with people who need Jesus, who need help. The sooner, and, and if you are married, have a family, get your family involved in reaching out. One of the things that I appreciate about my dad is he, was, he would take my siblings out to the homeless shelter with him and we would serve food to the homeless. And I was in elementary school but it it left this impact on me. And even now, I I love homeless ministry, staring face-to-face with someone that that needs Jesus. Please, don't live like this is where you belong, like this is home. We have a mission, and it's to, to make our Savior's name known. And in closing, I just want to share this. An old gospel song I found this week says this. If I had a nice voice, I would sing it, but I don't. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. This isn't our home. This isn't all there is. Let's pray. God, I, I struggle with getting out of my comfort zone and making your name known. God, I struggle with not living like this is my home. God, I pray that you will work in my heart so I will be completely sold out for you. I will be completely all in, willing to sacrifice everything, willing to die to make your name known wherever you call me. God, I ask everyone here, man, if someone does not know you, I pray you will show them, help them realize that they need you as their Savior, that time is running out. And if there are people here that do know you, 
God, I ask that you work in their hearts, so you will show them what are they making a priority? What do they need to hold lightly? What do they need to get rid of so that they can have this undivided devotion and focus on making your name known, on living like this isn't our home? God, I ask that you will work. In your name, amen.